Edmund is here with us, and he's a little over two weeks old. So we're thankful y'all are here and your new baby boy, and um, so blessed to have him for his church service, first church service here uh, this morning. We love you guys, love your family. But you ready to dive into the word this morning? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you want to do in our hearts. Father, take this time, sanctify it. Let us draw closer to you. Let us see Jesus. Let us follow stronger in our walk with Jesus. God, we thank you that you give us strength. You give us hope, help, and healing in our time of need. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, about three months ago, I preached a message called From Brokenness or Finding the Blessings in Your Burdens. Finding the Blessings in Your Burdens. And in that message, we unpacked the first chapter of First Peter. And I would challenge you, you can go back on our YouTube channel, watch it, or you can catch up this morning if you brought your Bibles and read it. But it, it talks all about this letter, this personal letter that Peter wrote to the church that was in exile, to the church that was experiencing persecution. And what I love about First Peter is it really speaks, I believe, to where we're at today as the church. As we look upon the landscape of our country, as we look upon our culture, as we look upon the condition of the church, that... First Peter is a personal letter meant to encourage those living in exile. Now you can shout it out to me. What, what is our understanding of exile? What, what's your understanding of exile? So we're all on the same page. Loneliness, yeah, being an outcast. You can also say, Garrett, you're meant to talk. I'm meant to listen right now. I'm not going to talk to you. Okay. You're good. You're good. She's got me. But it's being an outcast or being an outsider. And what's amazing when you open the, the book of, of 1 Peter, what you'll see is this paradox or this two sides of the coin that not only are we exiles, but we're also elect, that we're God's elect, that we're God's chosen. So the hope we have in being exiles is the hope in that we are chosen, that we have purpose, that we have power, that God is with us, that he's for us, that there's blessing resource available to us. So in this world of being an exile, we take heart knowing that we are God's chosen, knowing that we're the apple of his eye, knowing we're not left alone. And so this personal letter that Peter writes, we should take heart and take heed to what he wants to say to us this morning because I believe, and I've said it before, that the Bible isn't a, a bunch of stories of something that happened 2,000 years ago or thousands of years ago, but it's stories of relevance and practicality of what's always happening. The Bible is the infallible word of God that's always speaking to every situation, to every problem, to every circumstance that we can find hope, that we can find truth. I want to ask you the question this morning as well is, what is your allegiance in? Who is your allegiance in? What are you putting your ultimate uh, hope in? I think as Christians, we have to always reflect of what am I putting my allegiance in? This message began to stir in me this Friday as we were having our weekly chapel services here at Zion Christian Academy. And every morning we start by doing our pledges. We pledge allegiance to our American flag and we remind this generation that we're one nation under God and that's what we pursue, that we have freedom of speech and freedom of religion. We also put our, our pledge and we put our allegiance in the Christian flag that we're uh, not just a school and we're not just educating academically, but how many of you are thankful that this school educates with wisdom? that wisdom and education are different. And we see education only gets you so far, 
but wisdom will take you that much farther, and wisdom will sustain you through every problem, through every circumstance, through every blessing. It guides you and leads you of how you're to walk through life. Education gives you a tool or gives you a resource, but wisdom gives you life skills and gives you knowledge. And then we also, we pledge allegiance to the Bible, that it's God's holy word. We, we declare that it's a lamp unto our feet, that it's a light unto our path, that they're we're teaching them that ultimately we put our allegiance in the word of God from a young age. And so Peter, as he looked on the landscape of his day and of his time, it was a pagan society. It was a pagan culture. Is what we'll see is that homosexuality was running rampant. All of the things we see that in a, in a, in a pagan society, it was, at, uh, it was at a breaking point. And those that the church that were in exile didn't know how to respond and how to react. So Peter writes this personal letter again to encourage them as though you're in exile. Here's how you can be mindful and not mindless about the times you're living in. How many of us we can look upon our culture and upon our society, our families, our churches, and we can pick up that there's some mindless things happening. That is anyone actually thinking about what they're doing? Is anyone actually putting some thought and some process and some intellect and some investigation into what's happening? I pray that, and here's the amazing thing about God, and Paul says it in Corinthians, that we're to have the mind of Christ. That every thought that comes to try to rob you that's not of the kingdom or not of God, we're called to investigate that thought, that we don't have to take hold of it, but we can take it captive and investigate it and see if it lines up with the word. And if it doesn't, you throw it, you rebuke it, and if it is, you take it and you think on it and you become mindful and you move forward in it. And so I pray this morning, we're gonna, I want to address several things that just begin to stir in my spirit, that we need to look at what Peter says in his day, how it translates into our day, that we'd be mindful and not mindless about. What does being mindful mean? Well, let's look at our first slide. First, Peter 1, 13. And this is where really Peter will address a mob mentality or a herd mentality, that where you see just the droves and the population and what's popular going, that let's investigate this thing and see if it's of God or see if it's of the culture of the world. First Peter 1, 13 says this. It says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. Hear this, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it says, therefore, preparing your minds for actions. Action, King James will say, prepare, gird up your loins, gird up, and when it's saying this prepare, it's talking about that you need to gird up. Now, that, that word gird up, we don't use every day. You don't tell your spouse or someone that's sitting at the table, hey, gird up, gird up your, your skirt or gird up your garments. But it's talking about as a soldier sitting down that he needs to gird it up so his legs can be active and prepared for action. See, if we're going to be mindful believers and mindful Christians, is we have to be ready for action at all times. That we can't be um, unprepared or we can't be out of tune or out of place or sitting on the sidelines, just being mindless about everything that's going, but we need to engage our mind. And see, there's always two sides of the coin, and, and I think about worship, is that worship just isn't emotion or feeling the presence of God. I love that, and that is a part of it, but the fullest picture of our worship is engaging our mind. There's an, a, an early Christian pra practice, an aesthetic term called musing. 
that is you're worshiping, you're musing, you're, ref you're being very reflective as the songs you're singing. Just like we sing the blessing, that this is a promise that I'm, I'm processing, I'm thinking, that I'm, I'm worshiping with my mind as much as I'm worshiping with my heart. Isn't that amazing that we can worship with our thoughts? We can worship with our thinking. And so he's addressing this that we need to be sober-minded. Now, we're in church. We can be honest. What's the opposite of being sober-minded? Being drunk-minded, right? Think about somebody, picture somebody who's drunk or what a drunken state looks like. They think they make sense, and they're, they think they're on top of it themselves, but you're looking at them, and you're like, you make no sense whatsoever. What are you talking about? They're in this drunken mindset. And so when we're mindless, Peter is, is comparing it to as though you're in this drunken state, this drunken mindset. You're not making sense. You make sense to yourself, but to everybody else, you're crazy. You need some help. You need to sober up. And so we see consistently and continually and constantly through Scripture, we get this language of sober up, sober your thinking, sober your feelings. That if we're just led by our feelings, if it's just knee-jerk reaction on everything, then we're just going to follow the herd to whatever our emotions are telling us to do or follow the crowd. We're going to react. What is the military when they, when they train and when they teach? They say, ready, aim, fire. I think many times we do ready, fire. We don't, that aim is all about thinking of, maybe I should think through this before I post this, or maybe I should think through this before I engage in this social media battle. I feel you, Sister Kim. And as we're, as our culture is in a season, and again, I always say this, is we don't want to catch election infection. We want to be mindful about everything we do. And again, where I want us to go is ultimately our allegiance is in Jesus, our hope is in Jesus, and that has to be the lens and the filter of what we say, what we post, what we click, that we need to be mindful and not mindless in this season and in this hour. So our worship has to include our thinking. That's why Paul says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can discern the will of God. Yeah. If you want to discern the will of God, don't conform. Think. Don't just act, react. You've got to think. You've got to be mindful. Number two about thinking, thinking always precedes doing. Ready, fire, aim. Number three, mindless Christianity. I think when I think of mindless Christianity as well is that look at your social media feeds. Look at how... There's this great documentary that recently came out on, on Netflix. I forget the name of it, but it goes into the addictive behaviors of social media and how millions upon millions of dollars is spent of how we can create these algorithms and how we can create feeds that are addictive to get us to click and to buy and to get into their brands. And so being mindless, how many of you have ever been in a place of maybe you're doing a, a paper, you're doing a project, you jump on Instagram, and you look up and you've been mindlessly scrolling for a half an hour. And where's the time gone? And so there's this appeal and there's always this allure to just check out and to kind of be mindless. And I think we can easily take that into our walk with God is we can just check out. We really don't ever want to study or we don't want to read. We just want to get the tweetable preacher phrases or we just want to get uh, one or two scriptures that we kind of camp out on. But we never actually engage and study and go deep and muse and think and be mindful about our Christianity. 
So, Paul, so Peter is coming right out of the bat in 1 Peter saying, we've got to be mindful, not mindless in everything that we do if we're going to be effective Christians. There's this term I came across, and I remember learning about it in a, in a psychology course and was, had conversation on it, but it's known as critical theory. I think this is a spirit of the age that we see is that there's critical theory being applied to the church, critical theory being applied to every institution. And what critical theory is, if you don't know, it's, it's, t- it's being a critic and looking at a position of power or position of, of privilege and saying this, how can I deconstruct this and dismantle it, but never have anything that should rise to bring solution? It's just anarchy. It's, it's burn it down. It's tear it down. We don't agree with it, so we're going to cancel it. And we see this not only in our culture, but we see it coming into the church, that I'm just going to be critical about everything. And how can I dismantle it? How can I tear it down? How can I burn it down? How can I cancel it? Because I don't agree with it. That's why we see in our culture we're at such at odds with each other. We're at war with one another. And so Peter is is saying these things that ultimately Christian justice, kingdom justice is not dismantling and deconstructing, that it's, it's much bigger. And I, I want to get into that this morning as we move on. So we see, and I just wrote several things down of, of why we need Jesus more than ever right now, why we need to pray, why we need to set our hope, that we need Jesus to heal injustice. We need Jesus to come back. We need Jesus to bring judgment. How many of you think the judgment of Jesus is better than the judgment that we can provide? We need Jesus to forgive sin. We need Jesus to reconcile people groups. He's the only one who can do it. We need Jesus to provide for all the needs of all people of all times. And our hope, we know our hope is not in the election, ultimately. Our hope is not in political theory. Our hope is not in the psychological systems. Hope is not in a hashtag. Hope is not in an emotional response. And hope is not in the neglect of reality. But our hope is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can somebody say amen this morning? That this is what Peter is saying, your allegiance has to be, your hope has to be this morning. Saying, lock your mind on these things, sober up, fix your attention, fix your gaze, fix your mind, and don't waver from it. Secondly, we see this, is we have to choose God over selfishness, God over individualism. Look what it says, 1 Peter 1. 14, as obedient children. So he's talking to you and I as exiles that we're to be obedient children. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's good right there. That if you want to to, to, to do an overview or an intake of your life and of your spirituality, of, of your maturity, where are things of your former ignorance that you're still pacifying in your life? Where are things of your former ignorance that you're you're patty patty caking with, that you're just okay with, that you're tolerating. So he's saying, if you want to move forward, stop tolerating that of your past, that of what was former, ignorance. But what? But as he who called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We've talked about holiness. We've preached on holiness. But one way I want you to see holiness this morning is holiness is rebellion against the enemy. That if you want to really rebel against the enemy and Satan, begin walking in holiness and watch what begins to happen. See, sin is rebellion against God, but holiness 
is a weapon we have to be rebellious against the enemy. So if you love being rebellious, be holy and be rebellious during the enemy. And so he's saying that we have to look at the holiness of God. It's amazing, too, as you study scripture, if I were to ask you what was one of the top attributes in scripture of how God is revealed. I think many of us would say he's loving, he's kind, justice. Those are all good things, but the number one attribute attribute to God through the Bible, through scripture, is his holiness. And so I think holiness, especially in this day and this hour, gets underplayed. It gets, we don't want to do that because it might actually require something of us. We might actually have to change our behavior. We might actually have to go love our enemies and be like Jesus and how he teaches us to be. And here's another reason why I think we, we struggle with holiness at times. is because as we look to the world, and we as the church, when we say we want to walk in holiness, the world calls what is holy, they call it weird. <laughs> call it weird. Think about this. A young Christian couple just got engaged. They decide we're not going to sleep together until we're married. We're going to wait, and in the covenant of marriage, that's when we're going to have sex. You tell that to someone in the world, they will say, you are weird. <laughs> Think about it this way, too. What's another one? You're at church here this morning. At one point, at some point, at the end of the service, we're going to have a tithe and an offering. You woke up today, someone who doesn't know the ways of God, someone who doesn't know the purposes of God. You said, if you're on the worship team, I'm going to get up early this morning at 7 o'clock, prepare myself, be at church by 8 for worship practice, and then I'm going to be there for four or five hours serving. They're going to ask you, how much are they paying you? You're going to say, I'm not getting paid anything. I'm actually paying them 10% to do it. They're going to say, you're weird. And so when we choose to walk in holiness to the world, it will actually look mindless. It's like, are you part of some cult? What's going on? You're weird. You're doing all of that for nothing. But you and I know that we're doing it for a higher purpose, that we're doing it because we are a part of a kingdom. And I, I want to say it this way, too, that we're called not to live culture up, but kingdom down, that we never excel our culture the culture of America, the culture of how we were raised, even the culture of our church above the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God should come down. That's why we say in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. That this is how we're called to live, and it's in holiness. And so when we choose to be holy, we choose not to be selfish or individualistic. Don't be afraid of being weird. I think the, the former ignorance, it can be seen as lust. And when you look at if you've had a, a BC life and now your life and you look back, many of the times your decisions are fueled and based off of lust. Scripture even says this. What is lust? It's the lust of the eyes. That looks good. I want it. It's the lust of the flesh. That feels good. Let's do it. And then it's the boastful. It's the pride of life. It's pleasure. It's prestige. It's power. That outside of Christ, this is where the spirit of Antichrist will come and say, no, 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 you need to do what feels good and what looks good, and I promise you, it's a, it's a lie, but it's a promise of the enemy. When you get it, it will fulfill you. Yeah. Scripture even says, sin looks good, tastes good for a season. So don't be deceived that when we walk in holiness, we choose to put off the former ignorance of the flesh. Lamoris, you did an excellent job of Bible study where you took Scripture, and we went through the book of James where you said, in order to move in maturity, we have to put off, we have to lay aside that the Holy Spirit gives us the ability, but it's up to you and I to do the work to put off 
to lay aside, to put some boundaries, to draw some lines if we're going to walk in holiness. And I pray that you see this. And as I think about, I don't want to get ahead of myself. We'll get there. Number th- uh, three is this, is that we have to choose God over culture. First Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear or respect throughout your time in exile. Throughout your time in exile. And so we, what we see here is really it's putting um, emphasis on one's deeds. That let's not maybe judge the group, let's judge the individual. And I think this is one misconception we get. And many times the scriptures, most of the time it's taken out of context. It says, judge not, lest you be judged. So we say, I'm never going to judge anyone or anything. What that's saying is you don't judge a person's eternity, but you can judge someone's fruit. I can judge if I go up to an apple tree and it's rotten, I'm going to throw the rotten fruit aside and pick the healthy one. And so what we see here, he's saying, we have to first and foremost, and this is the place I'm always going to come from, you have to judge yourself before you ever think you can judge somebody else. How are you living a reflective life? How are you looking at the condition of your soul? And so it's saying here, what is your deeds like? How are you conducting yourself as exiles? How are you representing the kingdom? How are you being an ambassador? And so we see this here, that it can be said this way, that it's, it's taking personal responsibility for our deeds. I, I like this. More personal responsibility. There would be, if we take more personal responsibility, there would be less public problems. So as we look in the world today, if we would take personal responsibility as parents and raise our kids up in the way they should go, make the house of God, the word of God, the kingdom of God a priority, and teach them, hear this, to be controlled, self-controlled through the Holy Spirit, then when they can be controlled by the Holy Spirit, a rehab center doesn't have to control them, a police officer doesn't have to control them, a jail cell doesn't have to control them, because we're teaching them to be bridled, to be sober, to be controlled through the Spirit is self-controlled by the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you that that's been the keep and the grace in my life is growing up in this church, I was taught to listen to the conviction of God, that when you can respond to the conviction, you don't have to experience the condemnation because the conviction will always keep you and save you from the condemnation. You just have to listen to the still small voice and be, what did it say before? Obedient children. It doesn't work unless you're willing to be obedient. It's not, we love, parents, we love, okay, be obedient children, but you and I, as adults, we're obedient children to our Heavenly Father, and we want to be obedient to the Word of God. Compliancy with culture does not mean you're good with God. If culture says it's good, doesn't necessarily mean that it's good with God. Our culture will say in circles and in different ideologies that abortion is okay. You read God's Word, it says it's not okay. Different circles, even in the church, will say homosexuality is okay. God's word says it's not okay. And so we have to be willing to say, okay, these are the laws in my culture, but I serve even on a higher standard because what my country or my culture might not call uh, a crime, the word of God calls sin, and that's a crime against God. And so I live on this higher standard. Just like dad, when he goes out, he's shooting under 80 in golf every time we go out and play. He's always the first to hit. He sets the standard high, and then I'm trying to chase the standard. 
right, right, right. Hey, Lamoris has got the bug, by the way, so y'all better look out. Gotham machine. But this is what we got to see is that God sets the standard high, but hear me and hear the grace of God and the heart of God is that it's not about being perfect and saying, if I follow every law and every rule to a T, he's not after perfection. He's after progress. That it's taken me five years to cut off about six strokes on my golf game. If I were to look at perfection, which I call my dad in his golf game, right? No pressure, right? Then I would get discouraged quickly because I'm not there. But as I look back over five years, I have made progress, and I'm pretty proud of myself because I've stayed in the game, and I've got better, and it's been more enjoyable, and it's not so frustrating. And so here the heart of God is that if you have fallen, if you have made a mistake, there is such grace to pick you up, and you are not judged for your mistake. Here, we're going to love you for it and teach you and train you and embrace you to find healing in your brokenness. That this is the father heart of God. And you always have to see the father heart of God in the middle of our progress. Another one is this, is God over family. And I think this can be a tough one. I think this can hit home as to us as Christians. Is ultimately our allegiance isn't to our birth family or who we were born to, but our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. Look what it says. It says in 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways. King James will actually say hollow and empty ways. See, what's amazing is when you come to relationship with Jesus, you actually come into a new family. Now, it doesn't discount or, or discredit our families here on earth, but we're born into a heavenly family. We're born into a church. There's a commentary that says about family that when we sit at the judgment seat of Christ, Jesus will look at us and look for family resemblance of how do we look like him? Are we walking like him? Are we talking like him? Do we look more like him when we die than when we were born? I pray we all can say yes, that that is our goal is we want to look like our father. And so he's reminding us that sometime in family circles and family traditions and family ways, there can be just empty and hollowness that we just kind of cling to for comfort. But ultimately, we're called to serve the kingdom of God. Ultimately, we're called, as Jesus even says, he's bringing a sword. And he'll touch anything from family to relationships that I know I'm going to be the best husband when my allegiance isn't ultimately to Bree. We're in covenant together when my allegiance is to God. And out of that, God's going to resource me and give me everything I need to love and to serve her well. Let's not get it backwards and elevate people or, or organizations, institutions, the nuclear family, whatever outside of its intended place, that we want to make sure everything is in line. So it goes on to say that you can inherit these things from your forefathers. It's breaking generational spirits. Pastor Joyce, Jody and Jody, my parents, I thank you just in our life, Lane Clay and Cole's life, that you chose to stand against generational things so that we can have freedom, that we can go farther because you address the generational curses and the generational spirits in your life and taught us how to do the same. That we don't fight flesh and blood, but we fight spirits. We fight principalities, the powers of darkness, the rulers of this world. We have to know how to fight in the spirit if we're going to walk in freedom. And if you don't have parents that stood up and fought for you, you be the cycle breaker. You be the stronghold breaker. You start breaking generational spirits in your life. I'm telling you, it's worth it. 
And it's amazing that not only then what happens in the home, then we have a church family, then we have a Christian school where our children are being taught day in and day out how to pray, how to read, how to love, how to be kind, to having the fruits of the Spirit. That the church is meant to, to, to love and to serve from the, the cradle to the grave. That that's how he designed it. And that's the kind of church we want to be. And so he goes on to say that you can inherit these things from your forefathers. But it says, not with perishable things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You know, you go to God's family in Israel, you look at the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, that they were set free, but also they were taught and instructed how to live free. When Jesus, when God, Moses, through Moses, gives us the Ten Commandments, what he says is, do this and you'll live. So Peter is echoing all of this that we see that as being obedient children, if we do these things, it's this simple, you're going to have life and you're going to have life abundantly. And what's a pretty neat, as I studied this, is when they, uh, the last plague that was to come, the plague of death, that what was the commandment? That they were to go and, and kill a spotless lamb. They were to sacrifice it and put the blood on their homes. Well, what they would do in that sacrifice is as they would cut the lamb, as a family, they would come together and confess their sins. They would repent before God. It was a private matter. But then what, they, what would they do? They took the private matter and made it a public matter. They then took the blood and put it over their doorposts. So just as much as we love to say, I made a decision to follow Jesus in my heart, that's not where it's supposed to end. You're supposed to go public with your faith, live your faith in the marketplace, live your faith in your family. Men, we're called to, to train and to teach our children. We're called to, to wash our wives in the water of the word that we should be the standard of the word of God in our homes. Let's take it and be what God has designed it to be, that we want to be bring the kingdom into our families. God over tribe, 1 Peter 1.22 says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So he's saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. You know, as you study this out, some of the language of how Gentiles would be referred to by the Jews as though they would just be wood and kindling to burn. That, that the, the way the Jew viewed the Gentile was extremely toxic, extremely racist, racist, racist to, the, to the max. And so when he's saying this here, he's talking to a group. He's talking to a, a moment in this culture, in this society, that you're to walk as Christians, as followers of the way, as followers of Jesus. You're called to walk in brotherly love. So as they're hearing this, they're saying we have to love the Gentile with brotherly love, or we have to love the Jew who persecuted us with brotherly love. And it says not only that, but love from a pure heart. Jesus says you're not even going to see me unless you have a pure heart. Here's what we need to know, and I think it speaks to this time, is when we stand before God, we're not going to be judged by how well we fought to be right. We're going to be judged by how well we loved each other how well we loved our enemies, how well we loved those beside us and next to us. And see, here's what I hate too, 
is if we constantly live for the headlines and live for the big news, live for what's happening out there, many times we can miss what's actually happening in here. And those that are hurting that are sitting next, next to you, those that are struggling or maybe have had a rough week or got a bad diagnosis, that we can just get so consumed with, with having this public perception of righteousness or this public perception of I like that, so that means they know I love them. But how am I actually responding privately and in my community? Am I, do I actually care about the person that's sitting next to me? Do I care the, about the person that's sitting back there? Do I really care? And he's saying in your community, you have to have a pure heart and you have to walk in brotherly love. And it's a perishable, it's not this perishable seed, but it's an imperishable through the living and through the abiding word of God. I want to invite our, our, band, our team up and I want us to worship here in a moment. But when we see this, especially in tribe, what tribe says is this, is that one tribe says, we're right, you're wrong. The other tribe says, no, we're right, you're wrong. So what does that create? A fight between both. And so we need to be aware that ultimately our allegiance isn't to a tribe, isn't to a culture, isn't to say, I'm on this political party, you're on that political party, so now we're going to fight until one comes out right. We're called to go higher than that, to be more mindful than that, and not stoop low and be mindless about how we respond to each other. We've got to do it in brotherly love. We've got to keep a pure heart, that we can't operate the way the culture, the way maybe your family operated, but we're called to a higher standard. And this is what and how. Peter is saying you've got to live this way as exiles, that you're passing through. This is not your home. You are on a, on a sojourner. You are on a journey. You're passing through. It's okay to be an outcast. It's okay to be weird. Be mindful and don't take the bait. Last but not least, we see that it's God overall. Ultimately, we know that God is on the throne. He's sovereign. He's not going to be shaken. As he looks at the unrest, as he looks at the injustice, he's aware. Yeah. He's knowing. He's present. And what we can do, that's why we have to pray. That's why we have to know the heart of God to find help, hope, and healing. Look what it says. It says, all, flat, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But look what it says. It says, the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news that was preached to you. So it's saying if we're to put our allegiance ultimately in God, in the kingdom, in his ways, we have to know the word of God. What did you say, Lamoris, that the enemy is after the word? That we have to hold tight. Paul even tells Timothy to guard the deposit. What has been deposited into you, you have to guard it. Why do you put your money in a bank? Because it's safe. Well, that's where the word of God should be in your heart, and you have to protect it, and you have to guard it, because that's what the enemy yeah. is after. So he's saying that all of this is going to fade away. Every philosophy, every tribe, every culture, every family, ultimately is here one day, gone the next. But it's the word of God that's going to remain and endure. And what is your position? Do you take time to study it? Do you take time to dig into it? And so Peter would say, as exiles, this has to be your blueprint. This has to be how we love and how we respond. That to have a pure heart and walk in brotherly love with an enemy isn't just going to happen in your flesh. 
You have to train your flesh. You have to lay aside and put aside and receive the imperishable, implanted word of God to allow those seeds to grow. So he's saying that God is ultimately overall. And this is what we want to teach our children. This is what and how we want to live. You think about the Roman Empire. It was vast. It stood for thousands of years. It was prosperous. They had no need, really lacked for anything. But one day it came to an end. That empire, that culture came to an end. As much as we love our country, as much as we serve and we do and we abide in ethical and civil laws, our allegiance goes a step higher and it's to the kingdom of God. And this is where we have to live. And as it's kingdom down, culture up, the kingdom should then impact the culture. And that's the heart we're to have as believers. So if you stand, I want to pray for you, and I want us to worship, and I want us to ask for God to do this work within us, that we would put our allegiance in him. That's my prayer. That's my challenge of where have you put your allegiance. As you scroll back, and as you even see that, he mentions riches and wealth, silver and gold. That really he hits on that is, are you more, do you freak out more when you lose faith or when you lose finances, when you lose income? I think many times we'd say we freak out more when we lose a cut in pay, when an investment goes the wrong way. But we don't freak out when we lose faith. So he's saying is ultimately you'll know if your wealth has you if you're not able to give it. When you give it back, give that 10% back, it says my, my wealth, my allegiance is not in my paycheck, is not in my riches, is not in my finances, it's in God. And I'm doing this to not only just remind myself, but to show God I'm serious, that I trust you, that no matter what the stock market is, no matter what happens in the economy, no matter the next pandemic, that God is still supreme and my allegiance is to him. If you lift your hands, I want to pray for you. Father, we thank you that you're here in this place. We thank you, God, that we put our allegiance, we put our loyalty, we put our respect, our honor in the kingdom of God. God, let us be the spiritual outpost as a community where we can give the hope, the healing, the help of Jesus. God, let us not be conformed to the pattern. Let us not just go with the herd or what's popular in culture. But God, let us look to you because you are overall. You give us this imperishable word that far outweighs silver and gold. Let us hold it dearly. Let us guard it. Right now, we choose to not only do this work within ourselves and be reflective, but we want to give it to the next generation. We want to hand it down, that you give us a blueprint of how we're to raise our children, how we're to love our spouses, how we're to, to treat our enemies, how we're to be a good employee, how we're to follow you when it's tough, how we're to have faith when we see no faith around us. God, I pray you stir us right now and that we would see this blessing wants to touch us and to come upon us. And as this blessing comes, we want to guard it, that we hand it to every generation. We don't selfishly keep it, but we give it away as you've given it to us. God, as we sing this, let this work be done within us. Let us shift our allegiance to you in this season and in this hour, that we live kingdom down, not culture up. In Jesus' name.